This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. If you're trying to lose weight, there's an ideal time to exercise. We'll go in-depth and tell you when you should work up a sweat. Writers and studios are talking again. Local business owners are hoping Hollywood can get back to normal so they can also get back to normal. And the fish in San Francisco is so old. How old is it? Thank you. I know you were waiting for <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. It's, huh? so, it's old. It was born before the Golden Gate Bridge even existed. That is an old fish. That's an old fish. That is an old fish. <laughs> Uh, we start, though, with the best time to exercise, for you, not the fish, if you're looking to lose uh, weight. Rebecca Krukowski is a clinical psychologist at the University of Virginia School of Medicine, and she has expertise in behavioral weight management. Rebecca, thanks for being with us. Thank you. So what is, I mean, that's the key question, and then we'll go on from there. What is the best time, if you want to lose weight, to exercise? There really isn't a specific time that's best for weight loss. Uh, There has been a recent study that came out that looked at weight at one particular time and found that morning exercisers tended to have lower weight, but it didn't look specifically at weight loss. So your best exercise time is uh, uh, in the morning. Like what are there specific hours? Well, scheduling exercise in the morning is one tip that works for a lot of people because you fit in that exercise before emails and phone calls and meetings start if you have a regular nine to five. However, that's not everyone's schedule. And with exercise, I think finding the time that works for you as well as the exercise that you enjoy is most important. But I'm sure that there are times, right, because of the way the body works and hormones and things like that, when it is more conducive to exercise. If for no other reason, then it might be easier because you're not, I don't know, running on a full stomach. Sure, definitely. And some people also find that exercising right before bed hypes them up and that they wouldn't be able to sleep well. Uh, But we do have our different styles. Some of us are morning larks like I am and other people are night owls. And this study didn't specifically look at the potential physiological differences between people. My wife, may all the gods bless her heart, is a trainer, and she pounds her head against the concrete wall that is my lack of willingness to exercise, but she tries to get me to exercise. And she uh, had written down a plan for me to exercise, and she said, you got to do this in the morning uh, before you go to work. And I was always like, "Eh, in the morning, I'm tired, and I'll do it when I get home. And she said, you know, it's, it's, it's better if you do it in the morning. So are you telling me that I have to listen to my wife? <laughs> I would say if you are currently engaging successfully in an exercise routine, it ain't broke. Don't fix it. Keep doing what you're doing. All right. Thank you so much. That is uh, Rebecca Krukowski, a clinical psychologist at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. Right now, though, uh, the Writers Guild and Hollywood Studios, they are meeting again today to restart negotiations. As they meet, there are lots of businesses out there connected directly and indirectly to Hollywood that have been impacted in a negative way by the strikes. 
With us now is longtime KNX listener Linda Gonzalez, who owns Gloria's Cake and Candy Supplies that's near Marina Del Rey. Linda, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So we have been checking in from time to time on different businesses uh, and how they have been impacted by the dual strikes, the Writers Guild and uh, SAG-AFTRA. How have you been affected? Well, uh, what we are is we're not a bakery, but we supply everything needed to make and decorate, um, like baked items and and food items and stuff. So 20 to 25 percent of our clientele, since we're in the Culver City Marina Del Rey area near the studios, are food stylists. And the food stylists work directly in production with movies and TV and commercials and print media. And they are 25 percent, 20 to 25% of our business. They come in to buy all the things they need to make a, you know, styrofoam dummies to make a, a wedding cake for a scene in a movie or whatever it is they need to create for the productions that they're working on. And it's a big part of our base. Another 10 to 15% are caterers that work in the TV movie and they work on premiere parties and opening events and studio catering. And so you're looking at a loss of 30 to 45% of our business. When we were hoping that 2023 was going to be a recovery year after COVID. So losing that much business, is that an existential threat to you? Um, I'm very fortunate compared to others that I know have closed their doors. I feel for um, some of the other industries that also are affected you know, that have actually had to close their doors. Um, I'm still here. I survived COVID. We're surviving this, but it just has not been the recovery we were hoping when the strikes started back in March, you know, and uh, I just keep my fingers crossed. I keep listening to you guys for the updates on the talks and <laughs> hoping things will get better. Um, some of them still come in and I hear from them, my, the food stylists and the caterers, they're, they come in, but they're only buying something to make one cake or they have an order for cup. They're trying to survive by making cakes and cupcakes and things for other people now. Linda, how many yeah. people uh, work for you? Uh, I have six employees. And we're small. We're small you're small. Family. But, yeah. but it, it, I mean, are you going to get, if this continues much longer, to a, a economic crunch? I let, I let somebody go two weeks ago. You did. And. I felt really bad about it, but I had kind of warned her when she started in March. And then the strike hit, and I kind of warned her. I said, I don't know how long I'll be able to keep you. So I had to let her go. So I'm working her hours now. Hmm. I'm just trying to fill in, and I may have to let another person go. We'll just see. We're going into our busiest quarter, which also involves a lot of production with the Halloween cake shows and all the, you know, contest shows and things like that. So I don't know if it's not going to be as great a quarter as we had hoped as well. Mm. You know, so fingers crossed, knock on wood, and keep listening to you guys for the updates. Well, you know, the the writers are are talking now, and hopefully uh, at some point the uh, actors will get back to the table as well. Uh, so if you wanted to save this person's job, how much sooner do the writers and actors need to get back to work and resolve this? ASAP. Um Just, you know, as we go into, like I said, as we go into this fourth quarter with all the holidays, you know, because there's just so much production that goes around the different holiday events, Halloween and Christmas and Thanksgiving. And it's just, 
like I said, I'm just, uh, I'm hanging on, you know, by a thread, keeping my head above water. And luckily, everybody, you know, I, I've got a good client base that continues to come in, but it's just not, like I said, I've lost probably like 30 to 40, 45% of my business. Mm. Well, um, uh, good luck to you. Uh, Linda Gonzalez, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Owns Gloria's Cake and Candy Supplies near Marina Del Rey. A little bit later in the show, there are plenty of fish, of course, uh, all over the world. They're everywhere. Where there's water pretty much, yeah. you know, except my sink, but they're, <laughs> and I'll have to check. Uh, but they probably aren't nearly as old as one fish, just one fish, up in the Bay Area. We will tell you more about this very old fish. Mm. Right now, though, tonight at 7 o'clock, KNX is going to present Awareness is Not Enough. And I'm listening in Town Hall, hosted by Charles uh, here and uh, Mr. Mike Simpson. It's going to be followed at 8 o'clock by an I'm Listening, hosted by Carson Daly. The topics are mental health and suicide prevention. Dr. Marcus Rodriguez is director of the Youth and Family Institute in L.A. He is one of our uh, town hall panel members. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's good to be here. We have seen suicide rates go up and up. Uh, Some of this, uh, some pundits blame on the pandemic, but there were other factors at play here. Uh, What were the suicide rates doing before the pandemic? Were they going up then, too? Yeah, they were, actually. I think a lot of it being caused by people maybe feeling less connected than they have um, ever before, more lonely, a lot of different factors. But yes. Let me ask you a question, and and I don't mean this to be... uh self-serving at all but do, but you took part of course in the town hall that that uh we had a number of panelists on that and that's airing later and mike uh, simpson and i hosted it um do you think that those serve a purpose do they actually because we're talking about awareness and being more than just aware does all this discussion actually help I certainly think so. I think if nothing else, there's there's a more openness for people to talk about it. And the more that people are talking about it, they're thinking about it and they're looking for solutions so that we don't just have mental health professionals using their own lens and their own ideas about how to solve the problem. Because I think solving this problem isn't just going to be a mental health treatment or a medication. It's going to be um, providing holistic care, right? ultimately solving the problems that people are trying to use suicide to solve. Um, you know, the pain, the disconnection. If you have a friend who is talking like this and thinking about uh, suicide and you know them well enough to know that they are actually thinking about it, some suicidal ideation, and they refuse to talk to a professional, what can you say to them? What should you say to them? How should you act around them if they refuse to go to a professional to get help? Yeah, that's a great question. Honestly, obviously, it depends so much. So I, I, I'm, I'm afraid to make recommendations that will be taken by someone and immediately and directly applied. But I think what I would say is what they need most is to be heard, to be understood, right, to feel under, like not judged, to feel accepted. Um, and and ideally for them to help be able to open up to you about like, what is it that feels so unsolvable and so where they feel so stuck that this seems like the only solution that they can imagine to see if maybe you have, you know, ideas about like what ways they could solve that besides, you know, using a permanent solution for what might be a temporarily problem. 
And so I think a part of it is like being with that person, validating them while also being very mindful to take care of yourself, your own limits, right? Your own um, well-being. I think a lot of times I have clients who themselves are struggling a lot and then they're trying to support someone who's struggling with suicidal ideation. And, and so sometimes the, the, the best thing that we can say to a friend like that is say, as much as I want to help you and support you and I'll do everything that I can within my limits, it is like, I, I you know, like I can I can take you to go talk to someone or I can I can introduce you to a book. Um I think I think making recommendations like that, recommending them to, for example, to look into dialectical behavior therapy. It's the it's the gold standard treatment for folks who are who are feeling suicidal. There's just an article that was just released today, um, an opinion piece in the Washington Post um about Tony DeBose, who's actually a, a, a DBT trainer. He and I are We've taught together in Australia and Mexico. We're going to be teaching in Indonesia later this year. And we teach this treatment. And I think just letting people know like, hey, there's this treatment called DBT, dialectical behavior therapy. It might be able to help. And um, so I guess giving people hope and letting them know that they're not alone. I think those two messages that there is hope and you're not alone. You know, I, I, it's probably the most helpful thing. It's interesting. You mentioned uh, that you're going to be doing some of these uh, seminars in other parts of the world, because I don't think this particular topic uh, came up in the town hall uh, that's airing tonight. But I'm wondering whether this epidemic of suicide is an American problem uh, or is a global one, because there is so much discussion about the sort of basic fabric of this country being shredded in so many ways that might lead people to uh, want to take their own lives. And I'm wondering if it's unique to here. It is definitely not unique to here. No, it is. In, in fact, I, I grew up in Mexico. I lived in China for nine years. And, and my reason for eventually deciding to study dialectical behavior therapy is because it is a culturally, um, it is it is not a controversial topic in the sense that everyone agrees that like suicide is a problem across all cultures, right? Where there might be like cultural nuances and how people understand depression or, or anxiety or OCD or trauma unequivocally across cultures, people agree that suicide is a problem and, it, and, and yet having access to effective treatments, that's where, um, yeah, that, that's, that's where you actually see bigger gaps and, and believe it or not, like in the U S we, we do have a lot of access relative to other places in the world to treatments like dbt to treatments like mentalization based therapy another treatment that's helpful mm-hmm. um and, and and cognitive behavioral therapies that can be helpful to folks who are who are struggling with these types of of thoughts and who are feeling hopeless all right dr marcus rodriguez director of the youth and family institute in la by the way if uh, you are in crisis there is a number to call very easy you can call or text nine eight eight just three digits nine eight eight and reach the national suicide prevention lifeline and of course once again uh we do invite you to join us tonight at seven uh in spreading the message that talk saves lives join us for i'm listening on the odyssey app or right here of course on knx you're listening to knx in depth with Rob Archer, I'm Charles Feldman. We have a really interesting story, and I keep plugging it because it's very odd. Yeah. Because people go, why are you doing a story about a fish? Yeah. I mean, you know, there are many fish in the sea right. and all that other stuff. Uh, why this fish? This is a very, very unusual fish. 
A very unusual fish. And, and you know, and when you think about it, though, Charles, you have to understand that uh, there's an old George Carlin joke yeah. that somewhere in the world there yeah. is the world's worst doctor. Yeah. Somewhere. Just statistically. Okay. Somebody's going to be the worst. Well, somewhere in the world, yeah. there's the world's oldest fish. You went a very long way to get to that. I did. It was a long walk, and that's, <laughs> that's my exercise for the day. That was quite a, quite a stretch. Uh, right now, former President Trump facing major legal problems, uh, but they don't seem to be hurting him in the eyes of uh, many voters. Yeah, the latest Yahoo News uh, YouGov poll shows Trump tied with President Biden at 44% support among registered voters. Tony Smith as a political science professor for uh, UC Irvine. Tony, thanks for being with us. Hey, great to see you guys again. So uh, this is a very unusual universe that we find ourselves in, Um, because here you have a a former president with, what, 90, I lost count, 92, 93 counts against him. 91. 91, okay. Uh, 91... uh, Count. Granted, he hasn't been found guilty, but still uh, indicted in in various courts around the country, and yet, yeah. and yet, he's tied with the existing president of the United States, who has zero indictments against him. How does well, that he's happen? He's just not trying. He's Biden's just not trying yeah. to get indicted hard <laughs> enough. I think. I guess not. So, uh, what, what I would say is, is really two things on this. One is uh, we ought to be very cautious about um, the presidential race polls at this point in time because they're not very predictive of what the real life is going to look like a year and a half from now. The, so that's the first thing. Secondly, pollsters tend to fix their last elections problems, not their current elections problems. So generally speaking, the pollsters are assuming that the Democratic and Republican populations are about the same size, and they're not. The Republican Party has gotten smaller because never-Trumpers have left it or are not going to vote for him. And it isn't just the occasional person. It's people like John Sununu, uh, Liz Cheney. I mean, Mitt Romney is not going to vote for Donald Trump. So – that that presentation of it's about even is probably off a few points in each direction. And the best evidence, the best predictor at this point in time of what the presidential election is going to look like is what have what's happened in the special elections over the last several years. And and this is one of the best predictors of the presidential election going back to like 1972 forward. And Democrats have been overperforming by over 11 points for each special election. So a Republican district, it's Republican by 56 points. Uh, the Republican only won it by 30. Uh, if, if it's a Republican district by six, the Democrats lo- win it by five. So if you look, um, the, I think the, a lot of the journalistic press is overlooking how important abortion is in turnout and in outcome. And when you combine abortion as a motivator for some people who normally vote Republican and the compression of the Republican Party 
under Donald Trump's leadership. Mm. Uh, uh, I, I wanted to interject here and, and say yeah. that, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people are pointing to the fact that as Donald Trump gets indicted, his support among his base appears to go up. But there are others who are looking at that and they will admit that's true. But at some point, the air is coming out of the balloon and he's going to hit that wall. I wanted to ask you, in your view, if the fall of Donald Trump happens before we get to Election mm. Day, Will it be a slow fall or will it be a sudden, quick collapse? So so I think it's, so in social science, we often say causality and correlation are not the same thing. Uh, I think a lot of people have said, hey, look, every time he gets indicted, he goes up in the polls. But what there what there could be happening and what I think is actually happening is his challengers have failed to make the case. Um, a lot of Republicans loved Ron DeSantis until they met him. And then the, mo- the more he talked, the more people went, this, this guy's ridiculous. And his, his support has just collapsed. Not since Phil Graham has so be- somebody spent so much money for such a little poll outcome so far. And so, Tony, uh, but, let me, think, but let me ask him, yeah. Tony, because you, you, you mentioned in yeah. passing, you, you mentioned Liz Cheney's name, uh, a name yeah. that we actually haven't heard now for quite some time. And when, uh, you know, when she left the, the Congress, there was all of this talk, which she, of course, encouraged that she might right. run for the presidency right. in 2024. But there's been it's been silent. None. So yeah. what I what I think is going to happen is. The people that know how politics works on both sides of the aisle believe that Trump is inevitably going to be the nominee and he is going to lose and lose badly. And he is going to the the House is going to flip and the Senate should flip the Republicans, but probably is not because of Trump at the top of the ticket and Trumpy candidates like Kerry Lake in Arizona making what could be competitive races not competitive. So I think the never Trumper Republicans, the Liz Cheney's of the world, the um, Sununu's of the world, the Romney's of the world, they're waiting for additional um, electoral consequences. And in four years, you're going to see a very aggressive campaign to take back the Republican Party. Um, Now, of course, the question is, let's say Trump is a nominee and he loses again. Why won't he just still keep running? You know, he'll just say, well, I won that one, too. Well, he could. I'm going to keep he running. could. Yeah, he could. <laughs> so, uh, we'll see. Getting back, to the, getting back to the question, I think if he collapses, it will be something will happen that will make people defect. So he'll be caught in a hot mic. It's hard to believe what he could say that would turn those voters off. Yeah, uh, I, I can't <laughs> imagine anything. I, I cannot yeah. imagine anything he could but, possibly say. But let's say he had a hamburger-induced stroke on a golf course somewhere. <laughs> you might. I mean, look, this is this is the DeSantis campaign strategy right now. Hope he dies. Mm. There isn't really, you know, uh, it's 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 ridiculous that he spent this much money and can't muster a rationale for why he should be the the candidate instead of Trump. So uh, I think we're set for a replay next year, um, and. Uh, if you look at the Electoral College, I think Biden is in a very strong position. Generally speaking, Trump okay. being an exception, it is very hard to beat an incumbent president. All right. Tony Smith, political science professor at UC Irvine. When I was a kid, I used to have uh, a lot of goldfish yeah. as pets. 
Yeah. And inevitably, I, I come back, you know, from the uh, local aquarium shop with the fish. I'd put it in the bowl. I'd feed it. And I don't know, like a month later, it would be yeah. like floating on its side because it died. An investment in heartbreak. Oh, it was terrible. I mean, I went through, I can't tell you how many goldfish I went through. Um, and I always wondered, and I, maybe other people have, I mean, how long do fish actually live? You might be surprised. Uh, you don't think, uh, say, close to 100. 100 years old. 100 years. I mean, that would just be outrageous for a fish. I had to support it, yes. To live that long. But up in San Francisco at the Steinhardt Aquarium of the California Academy of Sciences is a lungfish named Methuselah. She is the world's oldest living fish in an aquarium. Because we don't know how old fish are out, out in the ocean. We haven't met them yet. Yeah. But I doubt they're that old. Uh, with us is Julian uh, Plowman, a uh, biologist who cares for Methuselah. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So as I get older, I see changes in my body that I don't want to talk about here. Uh, but things change. Time is not kind to us. How unkind is time to a fish that's 100 years old? You know, she's doing pretty good for her age. She is, she's definitely slowing down in, in the last number of years here. And, um, you know, you can tell her age looking at her. She's, she's had some change in coloration, but overall she's, she's holding strong and she's still just, just ticking along. Does a, does a fish get smarter with the passage of a hundred years? I think that she probably does. I mean, I, I think that she's she's certainly got a little more set in her ways. I mean, she there are certain people that she likes more and people that she's maybe less interested in interacting with. And she kind of has a routine down at this point and really is she's she knows when it's when she's being fed something that she really likes or when someone's there that she really likes. And she knows she knows when she wants to come over and interact and when she doesn't. So Methuselah, the fish, has a personality. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I definitely, I think so. Now, now we mentioned it's a lungfish, and some people may be going, what's a lungfish? Uh, it's a very old kind of, of, of fish, isn't it? Yeah, they are. They're really interesting. They're evolutionarily, they're about 380 million years old. So they kind of branched off about the same time that some of the the vertebrates, the higher vertebrates were evolving. So lungfish are really, in a way, they're kind of the sort of a link in between the aquatic animals and the animals on, on land. And so they've been this particular species, Australian lungfish are the oldest, and they've been around pretty much unchanged for about 100 million years. So a fish that's 100 years old living in an aquarium, it, what's the possibility that there are fish in the wild who are that old? Or is it because she lives in an aquarium? You know, we don't really know. And that's part of why this research is being done by this, by a group we've been working with in Australia, a group of researchers. Um, there's certainly a possibility that there are lungfish this old in the wild. Um, they really are pretty resilient. They're able to breathe like their name suggests, they have a single lung in addition to gills, so they can they can survive periods of short periods of low water levels and higher heat. So that allows them to be pretty resilient. But we don't really know. And part of this research that's being done will will help better understand how long they really live in the wild. Did you ever like I don't know 
freak out because a colleague was eating lunch and said, what are you having for lunch? And they go, fish sandwich, and you make a quick look at the tank. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I would say so. <laughs> uh, let, let me ask an indelicate question here. Uh, when Methuselah passes, uh, what kind of services are you going to have? You know, we haven't really talked about that, but I think she's she's certainly had a lot of press, and there's a lot of people who have lived their entire lives around here knowing her. I mean, she's certainly outlived a lot of us, and so I think there's going to be a lot of people who are really interested in celebrating and, and mourning that when it happens, but we're hoping we've got many years left with her. I mean, she, I was going to say, I mean, she, she was born, what, 1938? Was that right? Yeah, we don't exactly know. She came here in 1938, oh. and she was at least a few years old at that time, so we so, don't really know exactly, but she's she's been around more than that. Um, and part of this research has shown that she's more or less, she's she's 92 years old, plus or minus nine years, and we know that she's not born, bef- you know, after 1938. So we yeah. think it's pretty likely that she's closer to 100, or at least in her upper 90s. But but is there any sense in how long she could live? I think traditionally it's been thought that they can live up to about 100, but nobody really knows, and there hasn't really been any documented animals living that old, so. We hope to find out more in the future, but we don't really know. Does she know how to play bingo? <laughs> I don't know. I haven't tried yet, but that's something I can, I'll give some thought to. <laughs> can you take the fish with you to get in a, a senior discount of the movies? Yeah, now now we're getting to the dumb questions. So. <laughs> no, but it, it's interesting. I mean, but I actually have a, but a serious question. Uh, is there something that we could learn uh, for human longevity by a fish that can live and clearly function, at least function well enough, at almost or maybe even at 100 years of age? Yeah, I think potentially. Um, it depends on where this research goes, but um, they are lungfish like a lot of the really long-lived animals. They, are, they tend to be really slow. They kind of, you know, they take it easy. They're really... Mm. They, they rest a lot, and they don't tax their bodies too hard. And um, it's in like general, me. though, it's like me. <laughs> so, so, Charles, rest a lot, don't tax your body, and yeah. live in an aquarium. Yes, and water. you could live to be 100 years old. Yeah. Julian Plowman, thank you so much for joining us, biologist who cares for Methuselah, the fish who could be close to 100 years old. You know, I had a hamburger the other week. I won't say where. It had to be at least 100 years old. <laughs> right, because it was going to stay easily. Right. Easily 100 years old. That's it for KDX In-Depth today. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.